Good morning again, church. Good morning. morning. As many people have already said, happy new year. Anybody made a resolution? New Year's resolutions? Anybody? You're like, I'm just glad I'm here after that Georgia game last night. That was my resolution to make it to church after staying up late. That's good. I'm glad you're here. I know, again, it's, it's almost cliche at this point to talk about resolutions, but, but we love the idea of, of celebrating the new year because we like the idea of moving forward, and we like progress, and we like the idea of a better version of ourselves, and I really think the, the reason we celebrate like that is just because we're so afraid of being stuck. Anybody ever been afraid of being stuck before? Just, just in the same cycle, caught in a place where you can't move forward. Horrible feeling. The examples I was thinking of were really mostly with travel. But have you ever gotten in your car, put it in drive, and the wheels began to spin? Sickening feeling. Why? Because we're powerless to move forward. We're stuck. Um, I thought about times of air travel when the flight's been canceled. Or you get to your destination, but your bags are stuck in a different location. I've been on two different youth trips where the bus broke down, and that is the worst, being stuck, especially with middle schoolers. Horrible, horrible feeling. We don't like being stuck because it makes us feel powerless. And again, in times of travel like that, uh, we found resolution. We got on our way. But what if you're stuck in a place that's dangerous? What if you're stuck in a place and you're, it's a matter of life and death? In John chapter 8, we see a woman caught or stuck in adultery. And church, make no mistake, her life was on the line. And Jesus' ministry intersects this woman, and we see freedom in Christ. And the title of the message today, y'all, is Grace Versus Truth. And I want to show you how Christ is a demonstration that grace versus truth is a false statement. Our God is full of grace and full of truth Adam has read our passage for us. And again, we went through verse 20. We're going to see a couple of things that play into this passage. We're actually going to look at some of these verses next week and spend most of our time with this account of the woman caught in adultery. And so that's exactly what happens. We're told that Jesus in verse 1 goes to the Mount of Olives and he goes to the area of the temple. Again, the temple being the place of worship that the Jews would go to. But we need to understand that around the temple, there were several courtyards and places where rabbis, spiritual teachers would gather and they would teach on matters of the law. And this is exactly what Jesus does. It says early in the morning, verse two, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. So Jesus has a crowd around him and he's sitting there teaching them. Make no mistake, Jesus has set himself up as a teacher of the law. You guys can see I'm standing right now to teach, but for someone in this culture to sit while they teach meant that they were a very respected authority. And Jesus had set himself up as an authority, and the crowds were endorsing him as an authority because they were there. It wasn't like Jesus was just sitting there by himself. So just imagine this area near the temple, Jesus sitting, teaching, and there's a crowd there listening to him. 
And then enter the scribes and the Pharisees. As Jesus' authority grew and his popularity grew, the scribes and the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus. And they began to try to discredit Jesus. What are some of the things that they've said so far? They've told us that he did not uphold the law of Moses. They've told us that he's demon-possessed. They've questioned things about his hometown and the prophecies concerning that. They've questioned the nature of his birth. Is he an illegitimate child? All these different things trying to discredit Jesus, even trying trying to kill him, but today their plot in John chapter 8 to discredit Jesus might be the most despicable plan yet. What do they do? Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. And now here's the dilemma they bring to Jesus. Verse 5, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? It would appear that the scribes and Pharisees are bringing this issue to Jesus because they are respecting his authority. Is that what they're doing? No. They're not deferring to Jesus' authority. They're trying to deconstruct Jesus' authority. They're bringing him a difficult situation what they believe is even an impossible situation. I've got kind of three points that just outline our time together this morning. And the first thing that I want us to look at is the Pharisees' plot. I want us to think about what was their plan here. And essentially, church, their plan was to pitch truth versus grace for Jesus. Because Jesus had two options. Let me show you this. They said, okay, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses said that we're supposed to kill her. What do you say? Jesus has got two options. It would appear. He could say, let's free her. Let's show grace to her. Let's free her. And so then they could come back and say, well, Jesus, you don't care about the law of Moses. You don't care about truth. But then what was Jesus's other option? Sure, go ahead. Kill her. And then Jesus would look very, very harsh. We actually know from extra biblical sources, while this is commanded in the law of Moses, we never have a record of this law being practiced under Roman occupation. And so the people would have thought, this is the character of God to just kill someone who has sinned. When Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God, about grace, repentance, and so they believed that they could discredit him either way. The way they saw it, Jesus could show grace and compromise truth, or he could uphold the truth and compromise his grace. Grace versus truth. This was their plot. And just imagine with me for a minute, I believe that their whole plot was based on pressure. Using an example from last night, think about the last kick in the Georgia-Ohio State game, right? Uh, This guy lines up, a few seconds left to go. You guys knew I was going to bring it in somehow. And we've got one timeout left. Georgia does. We're Georgia, okay? And if you disagree with that, the door's back there. We're Georgia. Um, Love y'all. We're Georgia. We got one timeout left. And what does Kirby do with that last timeout? Call timeout to ice the kicker, right? And what's the whole psychology and plan of that is to increase the pressure, right? So that this person might mess up. I want you to notice the Pharisees' plot is based on pressure. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd who he'd been teaching. He's in the temple core area. And then the scribes bring this woman in and tell him the dilemma. And they say, what do you say? Notice verse 6. They were saying this to test him. There's a crowd here. We'll bring a difficult situation. A lot of people will be watching. 
so that they would have grounds for accusing him. And notice verse 7. It says that Jesus stooped down and started to write on the ground. It's like he didn't give them an answer immediately, and they want to keep that pressure there. So in verse 7, it says they persisted in asking him. Right? Jesus doesn't give an answer. He, he kneels down and starts writing, and they're thinking, oh, this isn't good enough. We need him to give us an answer. Answer us. Tell us what you want. Tell us right now, because the whole thing was grace versus truth based on pressure. This was their plot. They're thinking, checkmate, Jesus. We've got you right where we want you. They think Jesus is stuck. It's interesting in verse 6 when he stoops down to write on the ground. I, I, I really thought about this before, but as I was reading this week, a lot of people asked the question, what was Jesus writing? What was he writing when he was stooping down and writing on the ground? Well, we don't know, and it's not super important, but I thought it was interesting. A lot of people hypothesize or kind of guess that Jesus was actually writing down the law code that they were citing from the Old Testament about this woman and her punishment. And I think it's important for us to read the law, right? If somebody comes with us with an accusation, we should know what the Old Testament says about such matters. The Old Testament speaks about this in two separate places, Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. Listen to this, Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. When we hear the law code, we should recognize just the deviousness of the Pharisees. Because how many people does it take to commit adultery? Two. The law code says the, the man and the woman shall die. And so as we're reading this passage, if we have any understanding of the Old Testament law code, we should say, where's the guy? Because this wasn't about justice at all. The Pharisees weren't cared about upholding God's truth. They were uh, concerned with tearing down Jesus, and the woman was collateral damage so that they could get what they wanted to uphold their image. Where's the guy? We don't know. Right, So again, we're kind of guessing, but was the guy one of the Pharisees? Was he someone that the Pharisees had paid off? We don't know. I think from this passage, we do know for sure she was guilty. I think we need to understand that she was guilty. We say there might be a lot of questions surrounding this, but Jesus said, go and sin no more. Jesus knew she was guilty, but he also knew that she was a pawn in the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and this was not about justice. And it's so interesting, y'all, when you look at the Old Testament law, we're told that if we carry out the law in an unworthy manner, then the full punishment of the law is placed on us. Because it's not about God's character anymore. It's not about his holiness. It's not about truth. It's about our self-righteousness. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus is riding down on the ground, and then he gives us his response in verse 7. But when they persisted, keep that pressure on Jesus, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
This is Jesus' response. I was thinking, if I'm the woman caught in adultery, I'm not satisfied with this response either. This isn't a hard no, right? Imagine you get thrown into the center of a courtyard, your life's on the line, and you know Jesus is the one who's going to say yes or no, live or die. I would want Jesus to say, don't throw a stone at her. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus doesn't even pronounce his judgment yet on her. He just says to the people, he who is without sin... Let him be the one to throw the stone first. Jesus really doing two things here. First, he's calling mistrial. He's calling mistrial. If you read more about these cases and how they were supposed to be dealt with in the Old Testament, every fact, every offense was supposed to be um, confirmed by two witnesses, two or three witnesses. And it was the job of the witnesses to enact the judgment, to enact the punishment. And what Jesus is saying is here, he says, bring forward the witnesses. Who saw this and who is willing to carry out this judgment? And secondly, he's questioning the righteousness of every person there. He's saying, do you have the authority to judge her? Second thing I want us to talk about this morning, first, the Pharisees' plot. Secondly, the crowd's response. We see it again in, in verse 8 and 9. It says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Just imagine this scene. Again, I said so much pressure in this situation on Jesus to make a decision. So many people are watching. We're told there was a crowd of people listening and the scribes and the Pharisees, but Jesus' response ends up where the crowd leaves, and it's just Jesus and the woman. A crowd down to two people. Again, I hinted at it earlier, but I want you to notice Jesus hasn't pronounced his verdict on her yet. He hasn't told us what he thinks about her. And he does in verse 10 and 11. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Jesus' verdict, I don't condemn you. Go, sin no more. In John 1, verse 14, we're told about the character of our God and we're told that he's the only kind of person who could handle a situation like this and who could understand that grace can, can be not pitted against truth. That it's not grace versus truth. It's actually grace and truth. So what it says in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. How can somebody be full of grace and truth? That doesn't make sense to me because I, I see the situation like maybe the Pharisees saw the situation. If I show grace to someone, aren't I compromising truth in some way? Am I not compromising God's holy standard? And so I, I sometimes ask, why can God show grace to a person like this? Doesn't he know she's guilty? Doesn't he know that she was an adulteress? How can he show grace to her? The scriptures tell us that Jesus knew how to be full of grace and full of truth. I see those two things as a seesaw. If I show more grace, I compromise truth. If I show more truth, I compromise grace. How can God do this? When we talk about God's truth, 
or his righteousness. We're talking about his intolerance of sin and his holy standard. That he can't be in relationship with someone who is full of sin. So how can our holy, just, and perfect God say to this woman who's so sinful, I don't condemn you? Church, the answer is the cross. The answer is the cross, and this is what's so incredible. Jesus doesn't sweep anybody's sin under the rug. Jesus doesn't ignore or excuse anybody's sin. No, he paid for it on the cross. And our God is full of grace toward us while upholding his truth, upholding his faithfulness because he was crucified and satisfied the wrath of God for us. This is the incredible news of the gospel, that he can look at someone and say, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Even that statement, church, is so full of grace and truth. I don't condemn you. Grace. Go. Be free. Grace. Don't sin anymore. I think it was Paul David Tripp that said such a helpful quote. Grace is never calling wrong right. It's a way of dealing with our wrong. Grace is never calling wrong right, but it's a way that God deals with our wrong Sometimes, church, we're, we're tempted to look at our world, and we think the gracious thing to do is to stop calling sin, sin. And this is so wrong for us to stop, start saying, okay, maybe that is okay. Church, we got to agree with the heart of God. That's not okay, whatever sin it is. But when we interact with other people, because of what Jesus has done, he can look at us and say, that's not okay, but we're okay. And we're okay because I paid for it because I paid for the thing that's not okay. And church, this is the incredible truth of the gospel that our God can be full of grace and full of truth toward people because he paid for our sin. And the world just doesn't get it. Church, the fleshly mind doesn't get it because did you know that some of the most judgmental people in the world are people who don't know Christ? Right? We live in a world that is using a term called cancel culture. You do something that's not okay, they destroy you in the name of tolerance. Because if you take out the cross of Christ, grace is pitted against truth every single time. It's a vicious cycle. You bite me, I'll bite you back. You hurt me, relationships are broken, and only the cross of Christ can bring us back together and reconcile relationships. And Jesus demonstrates this in maybe the most powerful way we see in the book of John, that he is full of grace and full of truth. And we got to remember, church, he said, let the one without sin throw the first stone. So who could throw the first stone? There was somebody there that day who could throw a stone. It was Jesus. And he decided not to. In fact, he decided to go to the cross for this woman and for you and for me so that he could show grace to us all. It's incredible. And he says, go and sin no more. I love that challenge from Jesus. That's the third thing I want us to talk about this morning is just Jesus' challenge He says, I've given you grace. I've freed you. Go. You're not caught. You're not stuck anymore. I have freed you from this. Just don't sin anymore. Just go and and sin no more. And and this is the challenge of Jesus. It's a grace-filled challenge. He's, He's not saying if you sin again, then I won't love you and I won't forgive you and I won't advocate for you. But he's saying, I've freed you. Don't go back to sin. And this is an incredible teaching moment that we see throughout the Bible, right? But when the Israelites left slavery and went to the wilderness, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt, right? 
Galatians 5.1, Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit yourself to the yoke of slavery again. Since Christ has freed you, why would you want to go back? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to this woman. I love you. I forgive you. I do not judge you. Go be free and don't submit yourself to slavery again. And we see that he is just so full of grace and truth. What does this passage have to do with our lives today? I think for so many of us, we identify with this woman, stuck, unfaithful, and we have accusers too. Do you know that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren? the accuser of the church in Revelation chapter 12. And this is really Satan's job in our lives. When we're, we're sitting there and we're caught in our sin and we're thinking about what we've done, we're hearing you're not good enough. God has uh, abandoned you. He doesn't love you anymore. You've sinned just a little bit too much for him to forgive you. And we'll start to believe the lie that God has forsaken us. And church, when we do that, we're not being humble. We're actually doubting the power of the cross. We're doubting the power of the grace of God in that moment. So three applications that we have here that we need to uh, take in for our lives in, in this passage. The first one is church. How do we um, live in the grace of God for ourselves? The first one, I just, want, I just want to encourage you, get along with Jesus. Get along with Jesus. There are a lot of voices in your head. There are accusers who are saying things to you that you're not worthy, you're not good enough, that God doesn't love you, there's not enough grace for you, and you're hearing that from the world, you're hearing that from toxic relationships, you're hearing that from social media, you're hearing that from um, spiritual warfare, and there's a lot of busyness and a lot of noise. There's crowds around us. Some of them may be nice. Some of them are just white noise blocking out what Jesus is saying to us, but he didn't get to say the grace part of this passage until he was alone with the woman. Did you see this? There were so many voices and so much chaos, but Jesus was able to, to give her the grace that he had for her when they got alone. I want to challenge you, church. Stop listening to lies. Stop listening to the accusers. Stop listening to the world and get alone with Jesus. And listen to the voice that loves you. Think about all the voices you listen to in your life that tell you who you are. Do they love you? And have they sacrificed for you so that you could have life? And we recognize, y'all, we're letting a lot of junk into our heads. And the answer is yes, to turn off maybe the phone sometimes, maybe uh, not escape quite as much in life and, and pursue escapism. But it's not just to do that and then go sit on your couch and be bored. It's to go get alone with Jesus. And let the condemnation and the shame and the guilt melt away as you enjoy your Savior. When I was in school, seminary, this is so cool. This is why you should go to seminary. One of our assignments was to spend one hour by ourselves in solitude with Jesus. This was the assignment. And then we were supposed to write a little bit of a paper on our experience. And so I was working at a different church at that time. I went up into one of our youth rooms, and I took four things with me to spend an hour alone with Jesus. I took my Bible, I took a notebook, and I took a pen, and I took my guitar. And as I spend time with Jesus, I know those are the four things I need. And here's why, because I love music, right? I just love music, and I love worshiping God, and so I take my guitar in to do things like that. I also need a pen and a piece of paper because I can't pray for five minutes in my head without wandering. 
And so for me to slow down when I pray, I have to write out my prayers. That's just something I've learned about myself. And then I took God's word and I got along with Jesus church and I spent an hour with him. I sang some songs. I wrote out some prayers, just kind of dumped all of my anxiety and everything that was going on in my life. I can't even remember what I wrote, but it was important at the time, right? And then I started reading through. I think I read two books of the Bible, and I was like, God, just speak to me in my life. And church, I walked out of that room a new man, so peaceful, so encouraged. Just I didn't feel condemned because I was with Jesus. And I've thought back on that day that was maybe two years ago, maybe probably three years ago now, and I remember how I felt. And I'm always ashamed to think, why don't I do that more? It was so sweet. It was so good. It's the best I've felt about myself in a long time because I was with my father. Why don't I do that more? In church, it's so easy in the busyness of life to listen to voices who do not love you and feel that condemnation and believe lies. Church, get alone with Jesus. And when you get alone with Jesus, I want you to do this second thing, and that is let Jesus defend your indefensible position. Let Jesus defend your indefensible position. Here's what I mean by that, okay? Now, again, when I have something in my life, I know I messed up or I'm stressed out about something, our tendency is to escape that problem, right? And when you spend time with Jesus, you can't escape from it. No, Jesus will actually convict you of things, right? The Holy Spirit will bring things to mind. So you're sitting there alone with Jesus, reading your Bible or praying, and he's helping you. He's bringing uh, anger up in the surface. He's bringing your lust to the surface, and he's showing you exactly what kind of things you need to repent of, not in a condemning way, but in a way of I want to mold you into myself. And when you see your sin and you see God's holiness, every fiber of your being is going to want to make excuses for your sin, Anybody do this before? You're thinking about maybe, let's just say you had a fight with somebody, and you're thinking, you don't know how they treated me. You don't know what they did to me. They started it, all these different things, and we want to make excuses for our sin. And church, I want you to hear me. You can have your excuses, or you can have God's forgiveness, but you can't have both. You can have your excuses or God's forgiveness, but you cannot have both. And repentance is when you say, there is no excuse for what I did. And I am guilty, and on my own power, I'm caught, I'm stuck, and I deserve death. And church, when you come to that place and you look to the Son, Jesus will defend your indefensible position. He will free you in an impossible way, just like he did for this woman through the power of the cross. But for me to unlock and enjoy that grace in my life, I have got to say there is no excuse for who I am and what I've done. In church, I was just thinking this week, I, I love my excuses because they make me feel better about myself. But they're ineffective, and they're not powerful, and they don't make me right with God. And we see in this passage in John chapter 8, Jesus be the advocate. It's a cool word, advocate. My, my wife is an advocate for a living. 
And what she does, essentially, she's a foster care specialist. So she is in the middle between foster parents and the state because foster parents sometimes don't know what to do or they don't know what's going on with defects and all these different things. So they call Olivia. And it was really, really cool because we're driving home from Auburn, went and saw some family this week for Christmas, and we're driving through Atlanta. And I'm listening to my wife on the phone, and, and the state had done something to, uh, that was wrong in the eyes of the foster parents. And Olivia was able to say, yes, that's wrong. You tell the state no because they're out of line. And she was advocating for that family. In 1 John 2 verse 1, John writes, my dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That we have somebody who stands in the middle of me and my condemnation, and my judgment. And if you are in Christ, as we sang this morning, God really does love you, and there is no judgment. The cross has spoken. Death has no hold on you. And this is the beautiful picture of the intercessory work of Christ or the advocating work of Christ. Jesus advocated for this woman, and she did not receive her punishment. I was thinking, fast forward to John chapter 19, Jesus had an advocate at his trial. A man who stood between Jesus and death. A man who had been told by God he's innocent and Pilate failed Jesus. He didn't defend Jesus and Jesus went to the cross. I want you to hear me. That was a character flaw in Pilate and Jesus does not have that flaw and he can sufficiently and graciously shield you from all condemnation. If you are in Christ, Jesus is the better pilot, and he will plead your case before the Father, and you will have life, and we don't have to fear his judgment. Final thing that I want us to think about just quickly with this passage is we've talked about our lives and our salvation and the grace we experience because of the advocate of Christ, but when you look at other people, thirdly, church, don't throw stones. Don't throw stones. Now, just thinking about the narrative, we kind of, we were wearing the shoes of the adulterous woman. Now we put on the shoes of the crowd. It's interesting. There's kind of two different crowds here in this passage. There was first the, the group of people who had just come to listen to Jesus as he was teaching. And then there were the scribes and the Pharisees. So you wonder those people were just like showing up to hear Jesus talk. Like I heard this was a seminar. You know, I'm checking this out. And then, okay, this suddenly became a courtroom scene with some woman about to die. Can you imagine all this stuff? But how are you listening to Jesus and just this unfolding? But were some of them even tempted to produce condemnation in this woman's life or to judge her as well? And it just reminds me of when, when someone that I know is caught in sin, I'm supposed to first remember my sin. And then I'm supposed to remember what Christ did for me. And then I'm supposed to act accordingly. So many times, y'all, we're so quick to just pour out the judgment, just, you know, I got a really good thing to say, and so we say it. Because we're smart and we're the judges. But when I judge someone, I want you to hear me, we're not being Christ-like. Because Christ, the one who could judge, came to save. And this is the model that the church has been given to live. Remember he said in John chapter 3, I have not come to condemn the world, I came to save it. 
I love verse 15, John 8, 15 and 16. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. In church, our job is to show grace. And so many of us, we might just push back on that a little bit and say, Liam, but I'm supposed to uphold the truth of God. And so when I see a broken situation, maybe it's my job to to say, hey, that's so wrong. And and sure, church, maybe we have moments where we need to do that, but you never do it in a way that's going to hurt somebody or produce condemnation in their lives. Church, we do it redemptively, bringing people back because the church can show grace because Jesus has already upheld the truth of the church. And when we look at someone, church, you don't have to crucify them because somebody's already been crucified for them. And Christ has upheld the truth. Sometimes maybe church, when we see sin and we get so judgmental, it's because we're so insecure about our own. And when we react negatively to someone, it's because we don't really believe that God has saved us and that he's shown us that grace as well. And I pray, church, that we would see the way we forgive others through the lens of what he's done for us. Amen. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up, and we're going to sing one more song. We're going to sing what he's done. And the gospel is the basis for how we treat other people in our lives. And, and I know, church, when, when we start thinking about specific situations in our lives, it's so hard to see exactly how we're supposed to react and respond. You know, did anybody drive home last night in the fog? That was rough, wasn't it? There were some places, I told Olivia, I was just looking at that white line. I couldn't see the full picture of what was going on. And sometimes y'all was just thinking on the way home, life is like that, where you really can't see 10 feet in front of you. You can't really see three weeks in front of yourself to see what's going on in life, church. And in the toughest situations in life, we're looking for resolution of the situation as that's our answer and that's our key. And we can't find it and so we freak out and we respond badly and we judge people and we don't show grace. What's the one thing we're supposed to fix our eyes on? Jesus, amen. And in any situation, we may not know the resolution of that situation, but we know what Jesus has done. And we can always keep our eyes on the cross. And so we're going to stand together. And I just pray this will be a little bit of a time for us to do that as we stand and sing and reflect on what he's done. So let's pray, church, and then we'll stand and sing. Heavenly Father, you're so good. And Father, I pray that, that each one of us would commit to seeing the world the way you see the world. Father, and you see the work is finished. You see as the sin is paid for for those who have believed in you. And God, you're not threatened by sin. Your your righteousness isn't threatened because you paid for it. And so God, I pray you would show us how to live as the body of Christ in this community, showing grace to others as an act of worship, the incredible grace that you've shown to us. God, would you be I'm glorified in our time as we sing. Father, I pray each one of us would commit, Lord, to connect people to Jesus. Um, 
as a body, as a community, Lord, so that we would see incredible life change and see that grace go forward as the kingdom advances. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this year. And thank you for this people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.